Uh, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful things in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're in week six of our six-week series on our values, what's important to us, and we exist to worship God and build up believers and reach others for Christ. That's why we exist as a church, and by God's grace, we are becoming a worshiping body of biblically equipped believers who reach our world for Christ through relationships. Now, our values correspond to worshiping God, building up believers, and reaching others for Christ. They are God's Word, and if you've been here all six weeks, you hopefully have these memorized by now. They are God's Word, learning and obeying and teaching what God says, and prayer, fostering intimacy and, and um, closeness and dependence upon God, and families, following Jesus as biblically-based households, and relationships, loving each other with grace and with truth, and then service, just like yesterday was serve day, not just a day, but a lifestyle, serving uh, it with God's strength, and, and serving unselfishly. And then today, our focus is outreach. It's perfect timing that OB was going to be with us this weekend, and God knew that. And outreach is sharing Christ's love with humility and gentleness, sharing the love of Jesus. Now, in our recent church survey, only 15% of our people here at Grace say that they share their faith often. The majority admit that it's something they don't do often. Encouraging is that 44% of the people here at Grace want training on how to share their faith with unbelievers. And 30% say they want help reaching their neighbors. It's a real need. I think uh, outreach is a little bit like politics. Everyone has an idea about what should be done and how to do it, but no one does much about it. But it's a real need. It involves three interrelated things. Believing the gospel, living the gospel, and sharing the gospel. They're all a part of outreach. It it starts with believing the gospel. It's the foundation. If you're a Christian, God has drawn you to himself by his mercy and his grace and his love. And he initiated a relationship with you. And he initiated that relationship and you responded by faith and believed in Jesus Christ and became a part of what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says. Look at that with me. It says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
That's your new identity in Christ. When you come to know Jesus, you are chosen. You are adopted. You are set apart. Set apart for God's use. And it's all about what Jesus did for you. In fact, look at verse 10. It says that all this, you are chosen and holy for a reason. And verse 10 says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's a purpose. It says that you are not a people, but you are now the people of God. You did not have an identity as belonging to God, but now you do. It says that you had not received mercy. No mercy. Well, there's no mercy you get the full brunt of judgment for your sin. You see, mercy holds back God's wrath against our sin. It says you didn't receive mercy. Outside of Christ, you had no mercy. You received no mercy. But now in Christ, you, you have received mercy. The judgment was taken on the cross. Jesus took that punishment. Jesus took that penalty. You see, in Christ, you become part of God's family. You become a part of God's family and you get mercy, not judgment. Instead of being punished for your sins, you get what you don't deserve. You get eternal life. So you're enabled to do what chapter 3, verse 15 says. Look there with me. 1 Peter 3, 15. It's a context of being persecuted for your faith in Christ. Peter says, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And don't fear intimidation, don't be troubled. Verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. See, you are able to do verse 15 because of your identity and what Jesus has done in your life. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Now usually the word sanctify means to set apart. It means to consecrate, but here it means something different. In this context, it means to give priority in your life to worshiping and adoring Jesus. Give priority in your life to worshiping and adoring Jesus Christ. When you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, you give him first place. You do what Colossians 1.18 says should be done. And that he is above all others in your life, in terms of love, in terms of respect and loyalty and obedience. And you maintain a deep-seated inner dependence and confidence in Christ as the reigning Lord and the reigning King. So it begins with believing the gospel. Outreach begins with believing the gospel. And it hinges, though, on living the gospel. Living in light of the truth about Jesus. It means you choose to experience daily all the benefits, all the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. Chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11 says, Beloved, I urge you, this is a strong encouragement and exhortation, I urge you as aliens and strangers. You say, well, I'm not an alien. I live in America and I'm a citizen. Or most of us are. Or you have a country of origin. He calls you aliens. He calls us aliens and strangers. Someone who lives in a foreign country temporarily. That doesn't have a a settled 
dwelling place. That's what we are here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. As it says in Hebrews, we do not have a lasting city here. We're seeking the city which is to come. Yeah, we're putting down a lot of roots, aren't we? But the Bible says we don't have a lasting city here. We are seeking the city which is to come. Heaven itself. So we're not of this world. We're to be in it, but not of it. We're not to be consumed by it, but we're not to be afraid of it either. Living the gospel includes, but is not limited to, living a clean and upright life before God and before others. Look at verse 11. 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now, I'm not going to name all those fleshly lusts because I don't want to give you those visuals. You know what they are. You live with them. Now, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your souls. Wage war. War is a strong term. It's an internal battle that will last as long as you're on earth. It also means something else. Look at verse 12. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles, meaning anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Be, keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you, they will see good deeds and they will glorify God. Keep your behavior excellent. It means beautiful, gracious, noble, visible goodness so that they will glorify God. Shades of Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus says they'll, they'll know by their fruits the visible behavior, the outcome of behavior. He said that all men will know that we are his disciples if we have loved one for another. Visible. How you observe behaving towards others in the body of Christ. So your transformed heart must be evident to a watching world because you are being watched by your kids, by your neighbors, by your co-workers. So outreach involves not only believing the gospel, not only living it out, but also getting to the point of sharing the gospel. Taking initiative to say something about Jesus to other people. Look at verse 9 again. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession for a purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So there is something to say. See, God makes us chosen and royal and holy so that we can sing his praises, so that we can tell others how good Jesus is. So we can tell how others how great God is. What a privilege to say that. To say words. Well, see, some people say, I, I just want to be a silent witness. I just want to be a silent witness. And so, um, if you never get around to sharing Jesus with them, they're just going to think you're a really, really nice person. They're going to think things about you, not God. A lot of good that will do them in hell. Look at verse 15 again in chapter 3. 1 Peter 3.15. It says here, Set Jesus as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense. Always be ready to make a defense. The word defense there in Greek is uh, where we get our word apology from. Apologetics. It means to make a statement. It means to defend your position. 
to speak in defense of yourself. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. It's implying that people are going to ask. And Peter is saying that our inward hope, the inward hope we have in Jesus, should result in noticeably different lives where people are going to ask, what's different about you? Have you been asked lately? If there's anything different, what is it? See, we're to always be ready to tell, and it says to do so with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. Uh, Gentleness, being considerate, being humble towards other people. And reverence, to to be uh, respectful of God, and also to be respectful of other people. Not overpowering people with your personality. Not overpowering people with aggressiveness. But trusting God to persuade them of the truth. Trusting God that he'll use your words, however weak they might seem or sound, to, to sensitize people's hearts to the truth. These verses imply something. They imply relational connectedness. Being connected to God and yielding to him in such a way that he's evident in your life, but then also rubbing shoulders with other people, being around other people. Getting to know them. Taking an interest in their lives. The other day I was uh, out in a public place working on my sermon. I take my sermon notes around. You know, many of you know I take my notes and go walk around the neighborhoods. And, but at this particular time I was, I was in a public place and I was sitting there on a bench. And I looked up and there, were, there was a man over here and he was kind of with his family. And there was a man over here with his family. And it all of a sudden dawned on me that maybe I should engage them. Instead of sitting in my little cocoon, going over notes about what to share with you about sharing with other people. (laughs) So I stuck the notes in my back pocket and struck up a couple conversations. See, sometimes you don't share the gospel because you're too preoccupied with your own life. Or maybe you're afraid of what other people are going to think. Maybe you don't share the gospel because your life is so cluttered with other things you can't see clearly to, to even think about the needs of other people. Maybe you don't love those whom Christ loves. By the way, that's everyone. Remember what happened to Peter in Acts chapter 10? See, God wanted him to share the gospel with some non Jews. And Peter's like, No way. I'm too holy. And there, too dirty. I'm not going to do it. Well, God had to knock him upside the head. And God had to teach him a lesson. And he taught him that God doesn't play favorites by looks or economic status or race. That all who believe are welcome to him. The major challenge in sharing our faith in Jesus is besides self-centeredness and besides fear, besides apathy, all the usual suspects, is that people are opposed to the gospel message. People are opposed to the gospel message. Never before in America have there been so many spiritually minded people. And never before have there been so many different and deceptive influences spiritually. What a smorgasbord of spirituality that are just just laid out there in the American landscape on a daily basis. And many of you grew up in an America that had biblical underpinnings 
A biblical foundation that everybody kind of worked off of, even if they were a rank pagan. They still believed that there was a God who created the world. Even unbelievers. So when you shared the gospel with them, back then, they had a similar frame of reference. You knew what you were talking about. See, that America doesn't exist anymore. The average American believes a mixture of Eastern and Western religion. A little of this, a little of that. Very syncretistic. They think there are many ways to God. Not just one. And the challenge is to bring Christ back into a civilization that has forgotten about Him. People claim to be atheists and agnostics and skeptics and the like. Sometimes they're accurate, sometimes they're not. But they're enemies of the cross. But they're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. Satan's your enemy. He's blinded their minds. And God loves them, and he has called you to reach out to them. Anybody God puts in your path, who doesn't yet know Jesus. You have no idea who is going to respond. That's not your concern. Your task is to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God with the results. Peter Jones wrote a book called Gospel Truth, Pagan Lies. And in it, he says that anything that is not jiving with biblical truth is a pagan lie. We don't use the term pagan that often anymore, but the word pagan comes from the Latin paganus, which means of the earth, not of God. Paul gave us a definition of a a person who's a pagan in Romans uh, Romans 1, verse 25. Uh, A Christian, by the way, is someone who worships the one true God of the Bible through Jesus Christ, Trusts in Jesus to save them apart from anything they can do. But a pagan is someone who exchanges the truth of God for a lie, as Romans 1.25 says. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Such were some of us. Before we came to know Jesus, that was us. Bob Dylan sang a song a long time ago called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It might be the devil, and it might be the Lord. But if it is the devil that you're serving, he will get you to worship the earth one way or another. He will get you to worship God's creation one way or another. See, the Bible says that some will follow deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 The pagans believe that all is one and, 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 and one is all. That God is everything. Man and animals and rocks and trees. They make no distinction between God and man. And that in that situation, all religions are one, so all roads lead to heaven. As long as you're sincere. They say that no one has the one path to God. And that you don't have to worry about sin or guilt because you're God and you take care of all that. And that all you have to do, the answer to life, they say, is just look within. Believe in yourself. Believe in your power. 
up against that faulty backdrop stands the true gospel. The true gospel message that will never lead anyone astray. It's strong, it's authoritative, it's a message you can proclaim with confidence and assurance. A lot of people say, I don't know what to share. What should I share? There are many ways to explain it, but the message is the same. And there's one way to explain it on the back of your sermon notes. Actually, I put a couple there. But God's design is for people to have a relationship with Him. God created us for relationship with Him. You know the story that mankind rebelled. And He chose to sin, resulting in spiritual death and separation from God. And Christ, though, made a sacrifice at the perfect time. He made a sacrifice. He has substituted Himself for us. He took the punishment we deserve. God offers a gift. God offers a gift of eternal life to all who will believe. All who will trust Jesus to save them. And mankind must make a response. And believing in Jesus results in new life. Rejecting Jesus results in judgment. Go to John chapter 1 with me. Gospel of John chapter 1. And verse 12 says here at the beginning of uh, chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and He was in the beginning with God and in Him was life. And then you go down to verse 14 that says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we know that's Jesus full of grace and truth. But if you look at verse 12 it says this, as many as received Him To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. It's so simple. It's so simple that the youngest child can understand. To as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To all who will believe in his name. I'm sure all of you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now keep going. Verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And keep going to verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. See, Some of you say, well, believing in Jesus results in new life, but you cannot say that not believing in Jesus results in judgment. That's a bad word. Hell's a bad word. I tell my kids, don't say hell, but that's in the context. I will let my kids use it in context. (laughs) Okay, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's it. Verse John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. It says, this is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who doesn't have the Son does not have the life. So you can know if you're a Christian or not by the, by the simple test of do you have Jesus in your life? You know if you do or not. See, the gospel is the greatest news you can ever give anyone. How they can know God. How they can be provided with a way of salvation how it's to be received as a gift, how it can't be earned and it can't be bought. 
but it just must be humbly and thankfully received from God due to his grace and his mercy. You see, God did all the work and we get all the benefit. What a great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. Our shame for his glory. Thank you, Jesus. Just believe. But you've got to tell God's story. It's not enough to say, I'm just going to be a silent witness. You've got to get to the point talking about Jesus. And you've got to tell your story too. The gospel and your life. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul's talking about his ministry among the Thessalonians. And he says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very lives, because you had become very dear to us. Now that's just not for outreach. That's for daily living for Christians. To share the word of God and your life. But in terms of outreach, you've got to share the gospel, God's story, but you've got to tell, tell your story too, your testimony. You know those, um, you know those before and after advertisements where they pick the stinkiest picture for the before picture? You know, they're all like washed out and messed up. And, and then you got the after picture and they're like, wow, is that the same person? You know, all by, because of braces, you know. Uh, uh, and you got the before and the after uh, photos. Well, your testimony is your before and after. And you have the opportunity and the privilege to honestly tell them what Jesus did and how he changed your life. You tell the story. God does the work. God does the saving through his story, the gospel. Romans 1.16. The gospel, which we are not to be ashamed of, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's not your story that's the power of God unto salvation. It's his story, the gospel. But he also uses your story in lives of people. So you've got believing, you've got living, you've got sharing the gospel. And these all combine to produce fruitful ministry in the lives of believers and life change in the communities in which they live. That's what God does. You love Jesus and, and you will impact those around you. You build a friendship, gain a hearing. You got to be on your toes, always being ready, aware that your moves are being observed, aware that, that uh, people are watching you. Colossians 4 says, uh, let your speech always be seasoned with grace. Not too much where it's just kind of too syrupy and not too little where you're just really harsh, but just seasoned with God's grace. Can you really have enough of God's grace though? No. You present Jesus to those you interact with. Uh, whatever, whatever you say, they're going to look for evidence in your life. They're going to try to match it up and see if it fits. And, and our life can pull the rug out from under our gospel preaching. We're ambassadors for Christ. Angela and I were on a missions trip to Estonia back in 1997. And sitting next to me on the way to Estonia was the... the uh, the Estonian ambassador to the United States, Kalev Stoichesko. And uh, he was sitting next to me on the plane, and for the whole trip over, he told me about his homeland 
and his country and his people and the food and all the things that I could look forward to. And while I was already looking forward to the trip, I could not wait till we landed. Because even as we landed, he's pointing out trees and different things that he had been telling me about. He did his job as a, as a rep for Estonia. But if you're a Christian, you are a rep for Jesus on mission to a dying world to tell others about your Savior and about your homeland, your true homeland, to show and tell how awesome God is and how wonderful heaven's going to be. See, being on mission is really being about availability to God every day and everywhere. Uh, a good friend of mine and mentor of mine, Mick Borsma, who was one of my seminary professors at Talbot, he said something to us during our first semester there in 1985, and I've never forgotten it. He said this. He said, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you are planted. Wherever God's put you, bloom there. God's planted you somewhere. In an office, in a house, in a classroom, in a neighborhood, in a factory, Maybe in a, in a family where no one else believes. Trust God to use you there. See, the apple tree I planted in my backyard several years ago, it didn't say to me, hey, why did you plant me here? The azalea didn't do that. The lime tree didn't do that. The rose bush didn't do that. See, they just bloomed where I planted them. They just did their job. That's their job, right? You just put it in there and it it grows. Give it some water, food, and all that. But they do what they're planted for, just pure and simple. It's kind of like Psalm 1. Psalm 1. You know, that uh, the righteous, those who, who trust God, are like trees planted by streams of water, and they yield their fruit in their season. Their leaves don't wither. They, they prosper in God's hand. I think about Philip and, and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And there was a whole lot of great stuff going on in Samaria. There was a revival going on in Samaria. And God took Philip and said, nah, I don't want you in Samaria right now. But that's where the action is. No, you go down to a, a desert road. Okay. And he's down there and all of a sudden there's this guy going by in a chariot. You know, blowing dust in his face or something. And all, God says, hey, go up to that chariot. And he runs up, and the guy is, is reading the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus. What perfect timing. And he, the, the guy invites him up, and Philip asks the question, do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, Philip could have gone almost anywhere with that. Well, you know, this is about a prophecy, and blah, blah, blah. It says, starting from that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Philip was so in love with Jesus that Jesus oozed out. He bloomed right where he was planted, on a desert road. He was out of the action, or so he thought. That's what we're to do, though. Bloom where God plants us. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 13. You can go there if you want. But it's about a a farmer who planted some seeds. And when he planted the seeds, some fell by the road. And some fell on the rocky ground. And some were uh, mixed in among the thorns. And they were all wasted. But some fell on the good soil. And they 
uh, grew a crop. It was great. And Jesus explained this parable, this story, to his disciples after the crowds had left. It was kind of a cool setting. Jesus is in the house, and he goes outside the house, and he's sitting by the sea, and all these people just multitudes up, up to Jesus. And he gets in a boat, and, and they're standing on the beach. It's like his stage, you know, the, and they're watching, and he tells his parable. Then they leave, and he explains it to his disciples. And we find out that the seed is the word of God planted in human hearts. And James 1.21 says we're to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. So how does blooming where we're planted tie in with the word of God being planted in our hearts? The word of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, does its work in us who believe. Isaiah chapter 55, God says, you know, my word is like rain and snow. And when I send it out, it does not come back to me without doing what I sent it out for. And in Isaiah 55, it speaks of God causing his word to grow in lives to the point where instead of thorn bushes coming up, it says that cypress trees will come up. Well, thorns are harmful, but cypress trees are beautiful. It says that instead of metal, which stings you, instead of that, uh, myrtle trees will sprout. And he says good things will grow instead of bad things. And in Isaiah 55, 13, it says it will be a memorial to the Lord that will never be taken away. It's like, what's it? It is the transformation of the desert, the wasteland that God makes into a beautiful land. Well, what is that memorial to the Lord, the transformation? It ties into God transforming our lives by his word. That our lives were a wasteland before we came to know Jesus. And Jesus changes us by his word, transforms us in Christ, makes us new creations And our lives become a testimony to God's faithfulness. And we live forever with him. But there's more. There's more. If you're in Matthew uh, 13 right now in that that, that, that story about the farmer and the seeds, you've got to see the next parable that Jesus tells. See, the next parable that Jesus tells is a story about the tares and the wheat. The fake wheat and the real wheat. The weeds and the wheat. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who planted seed in his field, and the enemy sneaks in and plants weeds in his field while he wasn't looking. And it comes right after the parable of the sower, so you'd think the seed was the word of God. But it's not. It's something else. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, when Jesus explains this to his disciples. Listen to what he says. He said, hey, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, those are the sons of the kingdom. Believers. We're the seed that God plants. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is when Jesus will return. And in one parable, the seed is the word of God. And in the other parable, the next, we're the the, the seeds that God plants out into the world. We're to bloom where we're planted. Some of you have the gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to reach out. No one else is planted how you are with your unique blend of gifts and abilities. And the great thing is when you make yourself available, when you're willing to be used, God does the rest. So wherever you are, you can make an impact for Jesus because you just bloom right where he put you.
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can make an impact for Jesus wherever we are. And we thank you, Lord, that you use us to help people come to know Jesus. And that without Jesus, people are just totally lost. And we thank you, Lord, that the fields are white to harvest. And we thank you, Lord, that you have planted each one of us right where you want us. 